Hello and welcome to the Business of Authority. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And today we're going to talk about when to negotiate. Ooh, negotiate with whom? This is a good question. I mean, uh, I meant clients when I first mentioned this idea, but I guess, uh, you know, Chris Voss would say every conversation is a negotiation. Kids, spouse, whatever, you know, <laughs> getting to brush your teeth. Um, yeah, but uh, I've got some radical ideas about negotiating with clients. And maybe along the way, you'll have ideas about other. Did you have other kinds of negotiations that you wanted to talk oh, about? Oh, lots of them. But no, not that I want to talk about today. <laughs> the clients, I think the clients, negotiating with clients is a skill that we can all use and improve on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. Yes. You got all your real estate negotiations. That's a whole different oh, kettle yeah. of fish, as they say. Yes. Cool. Well, um, I think most people, when they think about attracting leads and, uh, you know, turning them into prospects, having a sales interview, writing a proposal, and then the dreaded negotiation, like how much should I price it? And what happens if they, if they say, ah, you know, can you do a little better? And all of the things that clients might say to, uh, to try and get you to lower your price. I think most people think about negotiations just solely around price, which is, yeah, not the way I do it. <laughs> well, yeah, there's a lot more than price in, in any engagement with a client. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the thing about getting into price negotiations with clients is that if you're going to have a, a long-term relationship with your clients or if you want to have long-term relationships with your clients and they ask for a discount or some, you know some kind of price negotiation and you concede the first time, then it's almost like their moral obligation to negotiate every single time after that. Yes, you've taught them that yes. that's the way to deal with, with you is that you're going to discount. That mm -hmm. first price is never your final price. Right. So then what do you do? Then you start inflating your quotes because you so you can so you can lower them. It's just like, okay, no. <laughs> that's not a game uh, I want to play. And I, I, I think I am 100% accurate in saying I have never lowered a price for a client without some sort of trade-off you know like a scope like, reduction or some kind of trade like where they they compensate me with something besides money but you know like promotional consideration or you know a blast to their mailing list or something but mm -hmm. but almost never and i'm just trying to be like totally complete and as transparent as possible i probably have done some things like that i'll sometimes give people a courtesy discount for prepayment of like an entire year of retainer instead of just month to month but those are all that's a trade you know i'm mm -hmm. not it's not just not them saying like oh we're a nonprofit. can you lower the price by 20 percent me saying sure yeah. you know that's that does not happen so uh so but what do i do how do i not just seem like you know a jerk when somebody says oh wow you know these prices are a little rough can you lower them and uh, what do I do to avoid that awkward situation? Because I don't want to be, you know, I don't consider myself a tough negotiator. I just don't negotiate price as a policy. But I am and willing to negotiate just, a lot of other things. Let me just stop you there, though, for a second. Because I think that's what a lot of people have fear around is negotiation. And I'm actually exactly in your camp. I don't negotiate price. I'll negotiate scope and conditions. But the price is the price for whatever work we've put together. But I think when you make that decision that you're not going to negotiate on price, it actually makes everything else easier. Way easier. You don't, you don't have this feeling like, oh, I'm, I'm going to cave. I know I'm going to cave. You just don't. Mm -hmm. Right. You don't. 
Right. But of course, you need to be willing to walk away from the job. Exactly. So, right. So I, I always have this moment or when I used to send proposals uh, back when I was doing mobile strategy consulting, I would this I would press send on the email. So I would type up my proposal, uh, turn it into a PDF and I would email it. Some people, um, even students of mine, they'll, they'll actually meet and present the proposal in person, kind of walk people through that. And that's fine. I just didn't do it. Um, I, I did fine just by emailing the PDF and having my follow-up steps and so forth. Um, but I would press send and I would, before, as my cursor was hovering over the send button, I, I would be like, am I cool with these prices? Because after I press this button, that's it. Yeah. It's gone. That's, those are the prices. And so then I would, okay. And then I would send it and, and then, right. Then I never have to, it's like, you don't have to worry about it. No, it's, you've made one decision, not a hundred decisions. Mm-hmm. And it just, it, it is so much easier. Right. Uh, so, but what do you do when they come back and, and they say, oh, well, this is, well, actually, here's what I would, here's what I do in the proposal. And I've talked about this quite a bit, but I don't think I've talked about it on the show, um, is that I, I put other things in the proposal to negotiate. In fact, I put one thing in the proposal that's so preposterous that it's the thing that people always want to negotiate if they want to negotiate something. And that's that I ask for 100% payment up front to block out the time in my calendar. Mm-hmm. You know, and for a big project, that's like a big check. Yeah. So, right. So that's, it's, that's the most jaw-dropping. No matter how jaw-dropping my prices might be, that's the most shocking thing. <laughs> so, and if someone was going to come back, they would say like, wait, you can't seriously want, you know, whatever, $200,000 up front. And I'd be like, well, what do you propose? And if now we're negotiating payment terms, not the $200,000. Right. Right. So for me, that was that was the most obvious thing to negotiate would be the the uh, timing of the payment. And I ask for it up front. That's, that's my air quotes padding because it's fine if I don't get it up front. It's nice to get it up front. But if it's, you know, if it's going to be like $200,000, I'd be fine with breaking it up on dates, not milestones or, or deadlines or delivery, but break it up on dates if, if they have mm-hmm. a cash flow issue or I don't need all that money at once. I'm not going to put it in Bitcoin or something. So, <laughs> you know, so it's fine. So we can talk about that and I can work out something, uh, kind of meet them in the middle there, depending on the length of the project and the amount of uh, the price and all, all sorts of things. I'm, I'm willing to go all over the place in there. And, uh, but if they are, you know, if they're insistent on, no, we need a discount, I'll just be like, these are the prices. If, you know, if we can't work together, I understand. Uh, I I thought I made it clear that I was going to be the most expensive option. Uh, but if you want someone more junior who would be happy to take the work, I can probably introduce you to someone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. And that's the key is that you have to be ready to stand firm and walk away if the client isn't right for you. And it's kind of easy for me to say, but when somebody starts out wanting a discount, I get a bad taste in my mouth. Mm-hmm. It, it means that either I, well, not either, that I haven't proven to them that this is for them, which means to me it probably isn't. Right. If mm-hmm. they're coming at it from a discount mentality, I just feel like they're always going to commit things from a discount mentality. And I like people with a, a wealth mentality versus poverty because what we both do helps people to get more money, to get mm-hmm. it faster, to get it more reliably. You know, it's an investment in building a business. So when right. somebody starts with a discount, I'm kind of like, yeah, I don't know. So we have to come to some meeting of the minds if it starts with a discount. Right. With a discount I, I, conversation. 
I agree. So it's kind of like, it's kind of like, oh, in my head, I'd be like, oh, I thought we were better fit than we actually are or, or that we yeah. appear to be. Right. It's like, yeah. I thought it was clear what the value proposition was here. You know, if they, if, if somebody says, if somebody says something like these prices seem really high or something like that, that's not, a, a lot of people would see that as the beginning of a negotiation, but really you can just answer it. Mm-hmm. You know, so if they, geez, this seems really high, I'd be like, compared to what? I thought we agreed that this is a potentially a million dollar opportunity for you guys. And this is only a $200,000 investment. Uh, and, you know, and you said my contribution to it would be critical, blah, blah, blah. And you said that you couldn't go with cheaper options because of these reasons. You've tried them before and it didn't work or whatever. So based on the conversation we had, it seems like I'm your best option. So of course it's going to be the most expensive mm-hmm. and, and just be like, you know, don't, in other words, don't, uh, you don't need to take any mention of the price as a discount request. You know what I mean? Start negotiating yes. with yourself. Yeah. <laughs> Good point. Because just because you're thinking something doesn't mean the other party is thinking the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I suppose it's important to note that I set those expectations in the initial meeting. So everything on my website would indicate that I was a luxury purchase when we're in the phone call, you know, when we're first getting to know each other, I would make it clear in no uncertain terms that uh, it was going to be pricey, you know, that, so that I would try yeah. and scare them away so that I don't have to go through the trouble of writing the proposal and then having that conversation later when they see the actual <laughs> exactly. prices. I'd rather exactly. do it up front. Because there are people who do it the other way. They mm-hmm. want to get a proposal no matter what. And then they think that when they then show them the number, the magic number, that then they're going to close. And it's mm-hmm. it's a different situation to be in and one that I don't like. If mm-hmm. it, for me, it feels less than fully transparent. And it doesn't have to be manipulative, but it can be perceived as being manipulative. Mm, oh, right. I thought it was in my head. I thought this was maybe going to be 50. And then I see, oh, it's 200. Yeah, this sort of like writing it down on a piece of paper and sliding it across the desk and like watching the reaction on their face. Like, no, <laughs> exactly. no, right. So like if somebody, so in the sales interview, I would, you know, if people were like, you know, can you give me a ballpark? And I'd say, well, I'll probably be twice as much as anybody else you talk to. Or they'll say like, you know, can you give us a range? And oh, anywhere from 5,000 to 5 million. I, can we talk about the project? <laughs> I'm not sure what we're even doing here. Um you know, so you throw out, I, I would throw out really big numbers and give, you know, with humor uh, so that by the time they see the proposal, they're already knowing that it's not going to be cheap. Like I want them to know it's going to hurt. And uh, you're positioning it right. yourself. You're positioning right. yourself and your work in their minds. And that's what we all do. Mm-hmm. Right. It'll be my favorite, my favorite uh, referral if someone was going to refer me to someone else, the thing I want them to say is he's expensive, but it's worth it. It's worth every penny. Mm-hmm. That's the referral that you want people to be giving for you. Mm-hmm. And yeah. And then when they get into the proposal, I will ideally, you can't always do it, but often you can tie your contribution to some kind of uh, back of the napkin calculation of the downstream uh, either revenue increase or profitability increase or market share increase and have in in the proposal right at the beginning some kind of number uh that is that is the value to them or could could be the value to them where it's like you know this will be this will mean a million dollars for uh per year to you conservatively if if we even hit a double here you know don't hit a home run Mm -hmm. it'll be a million a year for you guys so so later the when they get to the prices at the very end if the top price is two hundred thousand, well that's that's a fraction of, of a million 
a small fraction. And yes, I'm not, I can't guarantee the million, but I'm also not, if I could, then I'd probably charge 3 million, yep. you know? Yeah. Well, you're anchoring your fees in the outcome versus right. a, what a lot of people do is, is anchor their fees in time. How long Costs, will it take right. me to do this? Yeah, cost, if you want to look at it that way. And so then what happens is you're probably competing with other people that are all kind of in the same ballpark. In that example, Jonathan, so so you might you know, propose $200,000, but the people who are focusing on cost slash time might say, well, this is 50000 Right. But it'd be totally an estimate. Totally different positioning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. And the, the, key, the key thing that is really, really opaque and not obvious is that the people who are doing a time and materials estimate have a completely different kind of conversation with the client. They'll talk about scope, 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 scope. And the clients are like, the clients can only go so deep on scope, you know, assuming that your client's in a different business than you and you're not just hired as a contractor to do technical work for technical people. Um, but if you are, if you're doing technical work for non-technical people, you know, like if I was, you know, a bookstore chain, hires me to consult with them on their their go-to-market strategy for mobile, you know, in 2012, something like that. And they don't know anything about mobile compared to me. So, you know, if if I'm talking to them, I'm going to be asking them about, why would you bother even doing this? Like, why not just do this manually? Isn't there some off-the-shelf software that you could do this for, use this, use for this and not have to hire someone to, you know, architect a, a custom solution? Is that really going to be a competitive advantage? Is it worth paying 10 times what it would cost for off-the-shelf? Why don't you just, you know, send this overseas and do it, you know, at a tenth of the price? And I ask them all these questions uh, and, and that kind of a conversation, I'm asking them about stuff that they are experts at, which is their business, their desired outcomes, their customers, their strategy. They, they'll feel like they'll feel like experts talking to me because I'm asking them about the stuff they know about. If I were instead, if I was thinking time and materials, I'd be like, how many business objects would you say you have? How many can you ever have an invoice go to two different clients? You know, mm -hmm. do you track ownership of, I don't know, AV equipment in your organization uh, after you sell it? You know, all this t tedious scope stuff where they don't, they're like, I don't know, I guess, you know, would you ever have two owners of the same franchise? It's just like, uh, I don't know. You know, you ask them all these really, because folks who are planning to do it on doing a time and materials estimate, they're trying to uncover all the scope in one meeting or two mm -hmm. meetings, they're trying to uncover all the scope. It's impossible. It but see, see the difference between those two scenarios and how mm -hmm. each one is positioned. Right. So the first one, you've made the client feel really smart because mm -hmm. they are an expert at their mm -hmm. business, one would hope, right? Yeah, so they right. feel really smart. And then when you're asking them those questions, you're developing trust because, oh, this guy is giving us all these other options where we could spend less money and not use him at all. Hmm. And what you're hmm. doing ultimately is you're building confidence in whatever recommendations you make. So in that meeting, you are pulling people towards you in a very transparent, emotionally compelling way. In the second scenario, the meeting's really more about you. Right. You know, you're asking these questions so you can scope and the client is basically doing a brain dump, but you're not really asking them to think strategically. You're asking them to give you tactical answers. Exactly. And so, yeah, so kind of my point is, can can 
you, dear listener, um, feel the difference between those two scenarios and, and you just decide which, which person do I want to be. Mm-hmm. Right. There's a great Seinfeld episode where he, where, um, Seinfeld's having his, uh, kitchen redone for, for like an entire episode. There's like a carpenter in his kitchen and, and he just keeps on asking Jerry questions like this hinge or this hinge. And Jerry's like the nickel one. And he's like, well, why, why the nickel one? It's like, I don't know the other one. He's like, well, the other one's only got two holes. This one's got four holes. Which one do you want? I don't know. You, you tell me. <laughs> it just goes on and on. It's a scream. And he's just, it just makes Jerry feel dumb the whole time. Yeah. And, and it yeah. makes the, the carpenter look like an idiot too. So, right. So it's the, it's, it's not exactly the parallel, but what the whole reason I bring it up is because it circumvents the need for negotiation, even when you have really high prices or compared to the, you know, air quotes competition, because you've laid the groundwork so that they're expecting the price to be high. So they're less likely to negotiate it. Uh, mm-hmm. If they if they get through the whole meeting and they still want a proposal, they're expecting it to be expensive. They know it's expensive. It's yeah. you're the Mercedes option. We They understand that now. If they just want, I don't know, a Kia, then go buy one. That's fine. I'm not going to discount my Mercedes. So great. So then if you, you know, once they get to the proposal, hopefully they don't get sticker shock and they don't want to negotiate or ask for a discount or we want option three, but for the price of option two, you know, any of that stuff. So I guess I kind of like, um, it helps me play on easy mode with negotiation around price because it didn't really happen that often. Um, I, I guess I should also mention that I have a, you know, little PDF uh, it's not free, but it's called Learn Your Lines that has a whole bunch of just pat stock responses to, to I think, like nine or ten different kinds of discount request questions. <laughs> and uh, you, you can actually, if you, if you, dear listener, if you uh, follow my Ditcherville comic on Sundays, a lot of them end up appearing in the comic because they're mostly pretty funny because uh, I think it's really, really important to use humor in those situations and not be getting all stressed out or whatever. Like... Cool. Uh, yeah, yeah, these are ahead. your clients. You want to have a good working relationship with them. So mm-hmm. you need to be able to toss off these kinds of comments and just have it go with the flow of the relationship. Yep. Learn your lines. You know you know, eventually someone's going to ask for a discount. You know eventually someone's going to push back about paying you 100% up front. You know they're going to do this. You know they're going to ask you for a ballpark. You know they're going to ask you if you can commit to a deadline. Can this be done by Black Friday? Like You know they're, someone's going to ask you one of these questions maybe multiple mm-hmm. times. So just have an answer, you know, that deflects it back to whatever you want to talk about, which is their positive business outcome and what that might be worth to them. Yeah. Yeah. This is all about really creating the relationship you want with your clients. And I feel like the minute we start to negotiate on price, it changes the dynamic of the relationship. Yeah. It's adversarial, zero sum, winner, loser. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, maybe that's the way you want to run your business. But if you don't, this is a way better way. Yeah. And so there's some other things you can negotiate. So we talked about payment terms that that's always been my favorite. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, asking for a hundred percent upfront, you'd think everyone would say like, just laugh that out of the room. But in fact, you know, maybe it's just me doing a good job in the sales interview, but easily 80% of my deals closed with no question whatsoever. There's checks in the mail or what's your ACH information money's on the way. And then the last 20%, you know, it was mostly like they would just say, can we do 50-50? And I'd say, sure. What date do you want to send the second payment on? 
And they'd be like, oh, well, could we do it on sign off? And I'd be like, eh, that's not a great idea. And I have a whole bunch of lines that you'd say to explain why that's in not in their best interest to have sign off because it'll pressure them to sign off too early. And then the project won't really be done and you'll be gone. But outside of price or payment terms, there are other things you can negotiate like guarantees. Have you ever have you ever offered any kinds of guarantees on your stuff? Yeah, I have. I mean, I've done mostly on the smaller stuff where I've said, you know, if you don't get immediate value from this, I'm going to refund your money. Mm-hmm. So I do that um, on all of my programs and individual calls. Um, and I've done it in different ways with bigger projects. Um, sometimes I've tied it to revenue. I generally don't do that anymore. I've done it a few times in very specific situations where I was working on uh, a strategic rebranding mm-hmm. and um, the client wanted us to feel like we were, you know, in this together. And so I worked out, uh, you know, on maybe three different occasions. And I think it worked out for all of us. I mean, I, I made more money, they made more money, so everybody was happy. Um, yeah. Cool. Yeah. I have a whole bunch of different kinds of guarantees I offer depending on the offering. So just like you with something like a, um, a a one-time coaching call, I just, at the end, I say, you know, what, do you feel like this was worth the money? And they'll, you know, if they ever said no, it'd be like, I'll refund your money right now. No problem. Um, but it generally doesn't happen. I, I, uh, if you have a certain degree of expertise, like you're like, I know I can, I know I can at least get on base here. You know, mm-hmm. maybe I won't hit a home run, but it'll be worth, you know, 500 or 750 bucks. So yeah, that's it's not hard that, to provide that level of value. Right. And if you, if you, uh, if you're attracting the kind of people who can afford that in the first place, it's almost certain that you can deliver uh, positive ROI. So that's good, but it's only an hour or so, maybe it's less. So if, if someone's unhappy, I, I wouldn't want to keep their money. So it's, it's kind yeah. of like when people, the software developers especially who are only used to doing long-term projects the idea of a money-back guarantee is like comic it's terrifying like come on. You know <laughs> well what especially I mean? if you've got one client for a year i mean mm-hmm. that would be scary right so what i say to them when they're thinking about the idea of offering a guarantee is out and they don't know what to do what to offer i would say well what would you what would make you want to make things better like what would feel embarrassing or and unprofessional if you did it and they can usually come up with something there that or or another thing is um what when have you ever returned money or given people um some kind of free you know eaten hours is usually the way you'd you'd phrase it or i would have Mm -hmm. phrased it back then when have you when have you ever eaten hours and they say oh well if i um if i i thought i knew how to use some piece of technology and it turned out it was way harder and i burned like 20 hours learning the thing and I'd say, okay, well, you could have some kind of guarantee based around that because you'd give, you'd eat those hours anyway, uh, because it just feels unethical f- to you personally to take money for something that you think isn't fair to the client. So, mm-hmm. if you do that implicitly, why not make it explicit and put it into a proposal? Or you could use that as, you know, if they came back to you and say these prices are really high, can you explain it? And it's like, well, did you notice the, you know, uh, no learning on your dime guarantee? And they went, oh, what's that? It's like, well, a lot of times developers get in over their heads and then you end up paying for them to learn React or something. Uh, that doesn't happen with me. It, you're guaranteed that, you know, every hour I bill for was me actually creating value in your application. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously I'm against hourly billing, but it's a way that you could add a guarantee to and, and negotiate around that uh, for project work. 
Um, so for short stuff that's really no skin off your nose, like you know an ebook or uh, a, a self-paced video course or a sh- quick phone call or something like that, you know, that's relatively high priced. I think a money back guarantee is the easiest thing. It's going to be the simplest to understand and communicate. And, you know, like how, you know, here's the guarantee. Here's how you invoke it, and here's what you get for remediation if you're unsatisfied. Well, especially if you're selling programs and courses online, it just, Mm -hmm. we all feel better knowing we can get our money back. And in theory, if you use a credit card, you can always get your money back. But this is, it's much, it instills more confidence and trust in buying this. Oh, okay. So if I'm going to spend $1,000 on this and it really didn't work for me, I can get my money back. Okay. That's enough to make me take the plunge. Sometimes it can it can actually be that. It's that last little piece that convinces somebody that they're going to buy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's if we bring it back to the the context of a project proposal, uh, something you could use if if they're feeling skittish, they're they're you can't quite close the deal, and they want to negotiate something. Uh, maybe they're focused on price. Maybe the payment terms wasn't enough, or maybe they weren't interested in negotiating payment terms. You could negotiate a different guarantee or a warranty of your work and say, well, you know, what's what's the block here? And they're like, well, you know, we're nervous about paying all this money um, and getting left with something that uh, doesn't doesn't work. You know, like we we hired somebody in the past and we spent $60,000 for nothing. Like it didn't, they mm. never put the data in it and we ended up just shelving the whole thing. You could say, well, you know, I, I that will not happen with me. I would happily offer you, I would happily put that in writing and guarantee that uh, I'll give you like a 12-month bug-free guarantee where, if, you know, after we launch for 12 months, I'll come back, you know, just say the word, I'll come back and fix anything that's broken. If something turns out it didn't work, um, didn't come up in testing or it's something that just happens quarterly or once there's, you know, tons of data in the system, which we, you know, we're not simulating right now then yeah, it's just free. Just call us and we'll jump in. We will fix it and you won't have to worry about anything. So it's, you know, it's kind of like a, you know, five year, five fifty thousand 50,000 mile factory guarantee on a car yeah. in a sense. But, but if I put myself in the shoes of a client, a non-technical client, that would be music to my ears. That's the confidence mm-hmm. that I'd like to buy. I don't want to buy a bank of hours. I want to <laughs> buy the outcome. I want, it, at the very least, I want the box that you've built to work. The mm-hmm. way that we wanted it to work. At the very least, I want that. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Okay, so um, payment terms, good thing to negotiate. Uh, guarantees, good thing to negotiate. Mm-hmm. Uh, another thing that comes up, this is just happening earlier today, but it's it's not, un- to, to one of my students, it's not uncommon for you to um, have a sort of verbal agreement with say someone farther up in a largish organization or maybe even an enterprise and then, okay, handshake deal. I'll send the paperwork through to procurement or my assistant will do blah, blah, blah. And, and then the assistant or procurement comes back with like, oh yeah, um, we don't do, (laughs) we don't do this. Uh, Procurement doesn't do anything that you want to (laughs) do. Right. Right. And so, this one comes down to how firm you want to be, how much you want the work, so on and so forth. Um, because you you can, if you, it can be kind of torture to go through procurement. It's like, oh, mm-hmm. uh, let's see, uh, this is $50,000 paid 100% up front. No, our, okay, but our terms are net 90. So that's what you're going to do. Um, and, and if that's not what you agreed to with your buyer, uh, you should push back. 
you know, any real economic buyer should have some control over the uh, agreements they make. Mm-hmm. So if you had an agreement, there are a bunch of things you could do. Like, obviously, you could just cave, but that's not my favorite. I <laughs> know. Uh, um, that should be last. Mm-hmm. Um, you could, I mean, if you, if you want to be full, you know, um, tough guy or gal, I would just go back to my buyer and say, oh, it looks like the, the something got lost in translation on the way to procurement. Um, could you talk to them? And not even not even engage with procurement or the assistant or anything. Yeah. Just go straight back to the person who made the agreement. And, uh, you know, could you, uh, you know, I'm getting some pushback. Could you clarify for them what your what our agreement is? And then it puts that per- like that person, uh, maybe they promise something that they can't actually do. Maybe they're new with the company and they, you know, but probably there's something that can be done. I mean, well, plus unless you haven't by not engaging with the procurement person, you haven't created um, a problem internal to the organization that that goes on and impacts your project. You want to always work with your client first. If mm-hmm. you can um, step aside from procurement, <laughs> trust me, your life will be happier and the outcomes are more likely to be uh, positive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, it, yeah, it just depends on how much how hardball you want to play. Um, there are other things you can do to kind of like, uh, I've heard of people um, saying like, well, the, the discount that boss agreed to is contingent on the payment terms. Um, if if you want to give up the the payment terms and switch to say fifty upfront and fifty on another date, uh, then you're going to lose the fifteen percent courtesy discount, which sometimes will trigger an alarm bell, which is like, no, we have to always get the lowest price. Yes, it, that's exactly right. That's that's why you often want to offer with certain kinds of big companies. You do want to offer a, a um, an early payment discount because they mm-hmm. have to take it. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You can avail yourself of a 10% discount with 100% upfront payment. Um, well, and so, some companies want to do that because they want your project to be in a particular budget year. Yeah, you know, yes. Especially towards the end of the year, some will say, oh my God, I've got budget left. I've got $200,000. Can I pay you 200 now and 100 next year? And yep. Like, yeah. I hear that all the time. I yep. hear that all the time. Yep. You need to get these, you have to get these numbers off the books, you know, in this fiscal year. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, That's why so, December can sometimes be a very good month. <laughs> right. Yes, in the U.S., right. So that's that. I, you know, thinking back on it, what we've said so far, there's a big question of like how willing you are to walk away from the deal. And the, the more you go back and forth, the more invo- emotionally invested you're going to probably be in closing the deal because you're going to be you're going to feel the mm-hmm. sunk cost of like all the hours that you spent, you know jumping through hoops and having sales interviews and all of this stuff. And I just, I'm just like a ruthless uh, trimmer. You know, I just don't, I don't want to deal with any of that. I'd rather spend all of that time writing emails and getting better leads, uh, you know, like attracting, you know, speaking and doing podcasts and content, other content marketing sorts of things, going out in the world and helping people to attract folks who aren't going to negotiate or who aren't going to like try and fight me in a negotiation. So yeah. You know, again, this is kind of like I'm cheating and saying like, well, here's how to never need to negotiate anyway, is to attract people who already believe in your value proposition, then have a sales interview with them where you're clearly going to be the most expensive option. And then when you give them the proposal, the money probably won't be the thing that they they want 
to change, it'll probably be the payment terms. So I guess in, in my world when I was doing that, I was just setting the, laying the groundwork way up front. I'm doing it now. Anybody that listens to this is going to be like, well, he's the most expensive option. If I, if I, you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, but there's also, there's a situation where your client is primarily Fortune 500 companies and you Mm -hmm. are going to have to go through some kind of a hurdle um, with, if not, if not procurement, then there will be some sort of a process because typically your client is going to have a budget and they're going to have an amount that they can sign off for. Without and if you're doing approval, big yeah. projects, yeah, depending on who the client is, you know, they may not have enough authority to sign and they have to get somebody else involved. I'm thinking of an example where um, I proposed something to a large company and they came back to me and said, okay, it was like a 12 page document of all the things that you have to have. And mm-hmm. I, you know, at that time, th- that's who I was serving. So I had most of the stuff that was on the list and it was a formality. It was no big deal, but there was some new kind of insurance they wanted. And I'm like, mm-hmm. really? So I looked into the insurance and it was going to cost like $5,000 and the assignment was maybe twenty thousand and i said listen you need to give us a pass on this or we're taking a pass on the project mm-hmm. um and they, they gave us a pass but it was hmm. a it was a five minute conversation but so my point is if you're regularly dealing with these big companies you're gonna have to go through a certain amount of that but what you want to do is i think you take a page out of jonathan's book and say listen let me position myself as the highest option let me already have the system set up that these companies are looking for, i.e. I have, you know, this form and I have this kind of insurance and I will sign this kind of confidentiality or non-compete agreement, whatever those are. And then you, again, you still get down to as little negotiation as possible because you've set the stage up front. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. What, is there anything else that we try to think the, well, the, there is only... timing. We didn't talk about timing. You can negotiate timing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm glad. You... Yes. Yes, that's a classic one. So if uh, if someone – here's an example of trading value for value. Uh, changing, but you're, you're... So you could perhaps say to someone, if they came back and said, look, you know, this, we just can't – we want to go with you. And you believe them. Like you believe that it's a good fit. Like we want to go with you. We just do not have this much money. Uh, we're not sure how we can get it. So let's let's just say that you all believe all that. Something you could negotiate would be the timing, like you said. You mm-hmm. could say, "Well, this is this is true for uh, this is true for most of the software developers I've worked with. Of not just me, but lots of people find that the summer and the winter are really slow periods for new business." Mm-hmm. because decision makers are focused on other things. They're on vacation. They're away for holidays. You can't get stuff signed. Uh, so it's kind of like, you know, Blair Enns talks about the 100-day sprint beginning on uh, Labor Day in the U.S. Mm-hmm. It's like this is your time to make hay. The sun is shining. Make hay now because you're not going to be closing deals in December. Uh, so what you could do is say, well, uh, I'll, I can give you some um, uh, amount of discount, like whatever, 20% off or something that's going to work for them. If you can wait and we schedule this to start in December 1 or January 1, because uh, if you have, so like I work with people who have developers on staff and they don't want those people sitting around twiddling their thumbs, not just because of, you know, that sort of like paying their salary and not getting anything out of it, 
Uh, but they get bored and they start looking around and they get dissatisfied. <laughs> like you want to keep them busy. Yeah. So if you can schedule stuff for slow times a year, that's worth money. That's a, that's a fair trade. That's worth some amount of money. Well, I also, a couple of times I've asked clients where I got that pushback and I said, is it the amount or is it the timing? Mm-hmm. And when I ask that question, it's really interesting. If it's the amount, there's not much you can do about that unless you can change the scope. But if it's the timing, you can get creative. Uh, you know, I had a client who, um, because of the way their revenue worked, they got paid quarterly. So when you're getting to like the second and the beginning of the third month, the coffers are kind of empty. Mm-hmm. And so when I asked that question, he said, you know, I got to say it's the timing. Because if if we did it 30 days from now, I'd feel really comfortable because I have the money in my hand. But if not, I feel uncomfortable. So mm-hmm. we'll, we'll change the timing. Right. Not a problem. And you can change the timing of when you start. You can change the timing of when you get paid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, that reminds me of two sort of jokey situations that sound fake but are actually real. Um, where if somebody, somebody, if somebody insisted on like net 90, I'd be like, okay, I'll start in 90 days. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you know, when it's just put the invoice in now in 90 days, I'll get paid and we can start. And that, that actually can work. If that, like if you're, if your buyer can't get around procurement for whatever reason, and they're willing to wait, that, that might be an option. Mm-hmm. It's similar to what you just said, uh, but it's a working around a different thing. I've had uh, clients, though, that it, it's I, that is a good idea. Um, but one of the interesting things, and I'd be curious to see how much of this has happened to people in the last few months, is that um, they, big corporations, so I'm talking about Fortune 500, they've started using the little guys as their as their bank. Yep. So it's, yeah, net 90. Oh, but then we're not going to pay you. It's going to take another 90 days, and you're going to have to beg to get the money. So I had one client... I, well, I won't say who she fired, but it's a big, well-known financial services company that has credit cards. They issue credit cards, let's put it that way. And and they took six months to pay her, and she said, that's it. I am not doing any more work for you unless you want to pay me 100% up front, but other than that, no. And <laughs> literally stopped working with them. And of course, that organization didn't change their policy. Of course not. Right. No. No. Right. So you, you do have to be aware of that. And once you're doing a lot of work with different organizations, you know, and you've been doing it for a while, you're managing the cash flow, even if they're taking three months or six months to pay you. But boy, when you're first starting to go three to six months without getting paid. Yeah. Yeah. No. I mean, most freelancers have had the experience of like a client stiffing them on the last check or the client going dark. Mm-hmm. After launch or right, like close to launch, I and mean, it gets into the holidays, people start disappearing. All of a sudden, things aren't so urgent, and you're like, "I was kind of counting on that check for my, you know, a holiday <laughs> gift giving." Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah well, There's... yeah, and you're put in this situation where you feel weird sending the invoice because you know you're not really done, mm-hmm. but it's like, well, but, <laughs> but, but, yeah. but. Yeah, that's the beauty of having a payments scheduled in advance on dates. Like, I don't mind breaking the payment up, but I don't tie it to the project. I tie it to the calendar. Mm-hmm. So th- that's all the difference in the world. Because then you can say, like, if they miss a payment, then you've got some leverage because the project's not over. So yeah. you'd say, you know, hey, uh, project contact or hey, original buyer, uh, I noticed that uh, there's something wrong with the invoicing system. <laughs> I haven't. I don't know if you sent it, but I haven't gotten that payment yet. So could you check and... Uh, yeah. You know, and they're, you know, they're still going to want you to keep working 
you know, if they're in the middle of a project. So that's, yeah. that's key. Um, let's see, is there anything else negotiation wise? Guarantee, warranty, terms. There are things that happen negotiating wise during a project. So like, let's say it, around scope, and this might be very software specific, but I think it's probably true for other things where it's, it is definitely a negotiation. You definitely need to learn your lines for when they, they ask you to do something that clearly has nothing to do with the stated goal of the project. But like, yeah, since you're working on the website anyway, can you throw an image carousel on the homepage? Our competitors did it and sales guy thinks it looks real cool. And <laughs> my answer to that is like, oh, that maybe that would look cool. How does that contribute to the stated goal of the project? Because I'm going to guard the, I'm going to guard the success of this project with my life, and anything that's going to distract us along the way, uh, I, I'm going to want to put on a V2 list. So I'll keep track of that request. You know, if they can't make a case for it, contributing to what you're working on, the outcome that you're working toward, then it doesn't go in. Mm -hmm. And again, this is one of the expectations I set way, way, way up front. I mean, in the sales interview, I'm pushing back. In the sales interview, I can, I can get a sense of how they're going to respond to me not taking their answer at face value, like making them think more deeply about it, keeping them on track to the transformation and not worrying about bells and whistles and scope and this spreadsheet of 700 features you want in your iPhone app. Like, what are we trying to accomplish here? What's the big picture? So later, and I say the same thing in the proposal, and then later in the middle of the project, it always happens. Somebody requests something that's, that's clearly not going to contribute to the, the transformation. And I just point that out and be like, remember in the sales meeting when I said <laughs> I wouldn't do stuff that jeopardized the project? Well, this is one of those times and they'll laugh and say, okay, okay. So, you know, maybe it's a good idea. I'll save it. We'll collect a list of these things. And once we declare victory on this project, we can revisit this list of uh, possible additions and nobody ever goes back to them. Nobody ever cares. They never want to yeah. do it. Well, in, in, my clients' kinds of projects, you'll see that sometimes where you're doing, like let's say you're doing a big change project, some kind of an organizational design or development thing, and then somebody says, oh, we need to include the XYZ division, or oh, you know what, we need to ask, we need to do a survey of this group of people. And a lot of times those are good things to add, but you have that scope conversation right then. Mm -hmm. You say, okay, so because we're going to do that, we need to um, look at what that's going to do to our the price of the project and the timeline. Now, some people will propose flat fee no matter what. Um, but if you've got a big shift like that, having that, that scope conversation is usually welcomed by both parties because it feels like you are managing their resources, and especially on a big project with a lot of moving parts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I think that's a perfect way to handle it if you want to. I, I stayed away from stuff like that, and I preferred to do things in phases. But it's a different kind of project. Like, the kinds of projects that I would do are very different from what you just described. Yeah. It's, so, it depends on the work that people are doing and, mm -hmm. yeah, and what you're delivering. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I in in oh, probably a lot of people listening to this, if they're software developers, they're thinking, but what if people change – what if the client changes their mind? about what they want you to do. And if you're, if you're thinking that, dear listener, it's probably because you're thinking about scope because they and you will want to change features, specifics about features, the tactical stuff, the, the smaller things. As you, as you start moving toward the goal, you're going to want to 
turn the steering wheel a little this way, then you're going to correct in the other way. And then, oh, I overcorrected. We're going to go back to the middle a little bit. There's a little bit of that. It's like a mm-hmm. constant correction, but you want to stay in your lane. Um, so that's fine. That's to be expected. And that's why your price needs to be high because there's going to be some right. of that back and forth. The thing that I won't let them change, I will literally stop the project if they change their desired outcome. If they yeah. desire, if they change their mind and say, you know what? We don't care about increasing revenue. What Instead, we want to increase market share. We want to expand into Europe. I'd be like, well, we can pause this project and I can give you a proposal for that project. And then we can come back to this one later or whatever. But you're not stopping this. Like you're not, I'm not giving you your money back. Right. You know what I mean? Well, they changed the North Star. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's, and that is very rare. It is not common. It's very common for clients to, you know, if you have a list of, features that they gave you and you agreed to build this list of features it's really common for them to change that list if you don't have a north star because they don't they're driving with their eyes closed yeah they're everybody's got their eyes closed and they're yelling instructions from the back seat turn left turn right ah. <laughs> ah, that's the perfect metaphor right I, i've got the visual in my head yeah because nobody knows where they're going so of course you know it's like it's, it's like impossible the odds of hitting the goal are slim to none if you hit it you wouldn't even know <laughs> yeah so, you know, so anyway, so, so if you are thinking like, I could never do that, the scope, I, I, it's, it sounds insane to agree to a fixed price for like a, you know, six to 12 month long project. It's like people, business owners do not change their mind that often about the desired transformation. Mm-hmm. It's just not that common. Yeah. Yeah, no, I get it. And part of what you're describing, it's like the journey from being an extra pair of hands to really being a strategic partner. Even if you're still doing technical tactical work, you are becoming a strategic partner with your client and you're holding that North Star. They've described it for you. They've set the destination and you are holding that and you're driving everything towards that destination. Mm-hmm. Right. And to bring it back to negotiation, the that positioning that you've positioned yourself as a partner gives you a lot of leverage when things come up. Like they know they can't boss you around. That's Mm kind of, kind of boils down to that. A lot of it. It's like, you've (laughs) taught them that they can't boss you around. If they want someone to boss around, you're not the right person. Yeah. There's, they can find other people to boss around. Yeah. So yeah. And that's, and that's also, I think, um, you know, I've worked with a lot of people when they've figured that out. Oh, wait, <laughs> I don't have to let anybody boss me around. I know what I'm doing and I can pick and choose clients and projects where they will value my expertise. Uh, light bulb moment. Yeah. I won't tell you how to run your business and you won't tell me how to run my business. Exactly. If there's a good fit, there is. If there isn't, that's fine too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and when you have that moment, it is awesome. Yeah. I've yeah. witnessed that many times. Mm-hmm. Uh, cool. All right. That's probably enough out of us. You think? All right, folks. That's it for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And we hope you join us again next time for the Business of Authority. Bye. Bye-bye.